You are tuning into the True North Church Podcast. Our prayer is that you would be inspired and encouraged by today's message. For more information about True North Church, please visit us online at truenorthak.org. Awesome. So glad you're here. Hey, if you're able to make it in here in person, it means you probably don't live too high up on a hill and you didn't have to slide into town. Uh, would you help me welcome those who are joining us on live stream? We get the privilege of live streaming around our state into people. So let's welcome them. And if you're joining us online, we're so glad you're able to join us through our live stream. So my name's Rob. I'm one of the pastors on staff and I get the, uh, the joy, the privilege, however you want to say it, of bringing you part four in our series, The Miracle of Mercy. And this is a series that we've been doing on our Sunday messages, but also in our life groups, we've been building on the Sunday messages, we've been uh, going a little deeper into what this means, and so I want to encourage you, if you're not in a life group, to get into a life group and to kind of jump in even further into this idea of God's great miracle of mercy. And so today we're talking about an area of mercy that before I uh, give you the title of it, I want to I teach you a simple principle that I learned when I was into rock climbing. Okay, so believe it or not, there was a day where my muscle to mass ratio was better than it is now, and so I enjoyed the sport of rock climbing. And I remember as I was learning how to rock climb, you know, they're teaching you all these things about safety makes sense, right? You're about to go up this rope. You know, I didn't do those huge walls like thousands of feet, but even being 60, 80, 100 feet off the ground, you've got to be safe. And so one of the primary things they teach you is how to attach yourself to the rope or to the wall or to whatever else is uh, holding you in place. And so I remember going through this, and I remember I was, you know, when you're first learning this, I'm looking down at the knot, and I'm checking it one, two, three, four million times, because my whole life is being held on by this rope. And so, you know, as I got better and better at climbing, and don't be fooled, I never got great. But as I got better and better at climbing, uh, one time they said, hey, you're going up last. And I said, great. They said, well, that means you have to clean the anchor. And I said, okay, what does that mean? And then they began to tell me. And what it means is that when you get up to the top, you actually have to untie yourself from the rope. Now, don't worry. You hook yourself onto something else first. You untie yourself through the rope. You put it through the anchor, and then you retie back on. And let me tell you, the first time I did this, I rechecked that knot. I don't know how many times. My buddy down the holding the other end of the rope, waiting. You ready? No, not yet. Did you unhook yourself? No, not yet. Because I was terrified. And so as I would got more and more comfortable with climbing, I began to notice something, though. I checked that knot less and less. And in fact, I remember hearing an interview with one of the best climbers in the world who was telling the story of the time she had a big fall. And she said this. She said, the longer you climb, the less likely you are to actually double-check your knot. And I remember learning this principle that the more comfortable, the more familiar you are, the more likely you are to be careless. And in fact, this lady went on to say, you know, the highest percentage of accidents are actually climbers who are experienced and good at climbing because there's a familiarity and a comfort there where we sometimes just let our guard down and we don't double check things. The reason I give you this principle is because today the title of this uh, message in our series, Miracle on Mercy, is Showing Mercy at Home. 
And how many of you know sometimes the familiarity and comfort of home, of family, of those people that are with us every day lead us to be a little bit careless with some of the basics? And sometimes that causes our families to kind of fall and crash in the area of mercy. And so what we're looking at today is making sure we are not letting the comfort and familiarity with those closest to us lead us to carelessness with some of the most basic things of our, of our faith. Families are put together because two people said, I love you. And then they had kids and said, we love you. And the kids, hopefully, until they were teenagers, said, we love you back. But how often does that familiarity and comfort suddenly those good habits that we first had? You know, when you're first dating someone, everything is good, impressive. You are checking the knot of your relationship every day. Oh my goodness, they didn't text me today. Now in marriage, it's like, oh yeah, sorry, I forgot to text you, right? Because that familiarity, that comfort can breed a carelessness. And part of that, you know, this isn't just us. In the book of Psalms, in the Bible, there's a verse that the author prays this prayer that really this is our prayer for today's message. And he says this, Lord, I want to live a blameless life. How many of you want to live a blameless life? How many of you want to live a life where people can say, hey, you're doing good at it. Hey, you know what? There's problems, but it's not your fault. Hey, I can't blame you for what's going on. I want to live a blameless life. And he, but he goes on, he says, but how I need your help, Lord. I want to live a blameless life, but God, I need your help. And then he says something that to me, this is a prayer that I can echo. He says, especially in my own home especially in my own home, I need your help. Now, if some of you are trying to read that as, God, I need your help in my home because you have met my spouse and kids. That's not what he's praying, and we know it because the very next statement says, where I long to act as I should. And he's praying, he says, God, I want to be blameless, and I need your help to do that, especially in my home, not because of how my wife or my kids or my in-laws or whoever are acting, God, I need your help because I want to act as I should. And this idea of acting as we should, this is really what we've been defining mercy as this whole series. It's love in action. And we have to be careful that like those rock climbers, we don't become so comfortable that we forget the basics and cause a crash. And that kind of looks like this. For spouses, if we're not careful, the familiarity and the comfort can lead us to replace our vows with expectations. And our vows are when we said to our spouse, this is what I'm going to do for you. Expectations are when we sit back and say, I'm waiting for you to do something for me. But that's not what we started it with. The basic is, what can I do for you? If you're parents, sometimes we can replace care for our children with control right? Control is so much easier than care sometimes. We know when they're first babies, they're innocent, they're sweet, it's wonderful. What can I do to care for you? I'm your ultimate provider. And then they get older and you're like, stop! Because that's easier sometimes. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today because I can relate to that one. Kids, sometimes respect you should have for your parents is replaced by rebellion. And for siblings, well, you often spell family, F-I-G-H-T. Because that's what siblings do. At least that's what me and my sister did. We loved each other, but that's how we spelt family. So how do we live out love in action? Well, let me give you first of all, and by the way, I know some of you are going to cringe at this, but we're going to have a pop quiz. 
Okay, we're going to have a little test right now. And if you grabbed a worship guide on here, this quiz is on here for you to answer honestly and truthfully because you're in church, right? You can't lie. We're not going to check your answers later, but just know that God is watching you in church. And so we're going to go through a little quiz that is basically, the quiz is, how merciful am I with my family? Okay, so we got some questions here. Now, during the first gathering, uh, Pastor Mark was preaching. I was sitting up here in front, and we got to about question three on the quiz. And the wife and the couple sitting right behind me at that point said, I'm not answering any more of these questions. <laughs> okay, so that's just the, that's the warning. But here we go. All right, question number one. When my spouse, sibling, or another family member gets some details wrong while telling a story, do I A, interrupt them and correct them publicly, or B, say nothing and let it go, knowing I've done the same. Okay? Give yourself. Are you A or are you B? I've got a good friend who says this about his wife. She never lets the truth stand in the way of a good story. So you might, be, you might have that person in your family as well. So, all right. Question number two. When my spouse, sibling, or another family member keeps making the same mistake over and over and over and over and over, you know how many times they do it, do I respond by becoming angry and irritated at them? Or do I graciously forgive them and pray for them? Right? And when you say, oh, Lord, stop, that's not a prayer. Okay, in case you were confused, that's not actually praying for them. All right, question number three. When my spouse, sibling, or another family member is getting more attention than I think they deserve. This one, I think, is for the siblings. Think really about your sibling in this one, okay? And it doesn't matter how old you are. You know you have this with some of your siblings. Do I feel resentful and feel the need to bring them down a notch? Or do I celebrate with them? Question number four. When my spouse, sibling, or another family member says or does something I don't understand... Do I question their motivation for doing that, or I assume they have the best motivation for doing it? And the last question is simply this. Am I more polite with strangers, or am I more polite with my own family? Am I more polite with strangers or with my own family? You ever been in that situation where, uh, well, you know, let me rephrase that. I have been in this situation where my wife and I have been having a discussion Okay, all the married people know what I mean when I put a discussion in quotation marks. A robust discussion, shall we say. And you know, we're really, our tone is not polite towards one another. We're short with each other. And then all of a sudden, one of us, our phone will ring. And we're going from, no, you never do that. Hey, how are you? Good. Thanks for calling. Right? How often do we do that? We're sitting there with our spouse, throwing all the rules of politeness and good communication out the window, and then someone else phones, and all of a sudden we put, pick that back up. But we don't want to be that way. How do we show mercy in our home? How do we show love in action in our home? Because, again, our comfort and familiarity sometimes can lead us to be careless with those closest to us. Sometimes it's just a simple math problem. Okay? You're with these people more than you're with anybody else. So you have more opportunity to be impolite. You have more opportunity to be judgmental. You have more opportunity also, though, to treat them right and to show mercy. And I truly believe that the family unit is God's ultimate training ground for how we live outside. And if we can't get mercy right in our homes, we're going to have a hard time getting it right outside. 
And so this one to me is one of the most important messages in this whole series. And so again, this definition of mercy is love in action. So we're going to start in a very well-known chapter of the Bible that a lot of people call the love chapter. Okay, and this is 1 Corinthians 13. And in this chapter, the author of this letter to the church in Corinth goes on and says, here's what love looks like. Because how many of you know that love is a bit of a vague term? I love my mom and I love ice cream. Right? I hope those two things are not the same. But we use that expression. So to make it clear, we have this chapter in the Bible where Jesus, through the author, says, here is exactly what love looks like. And so I'm going to read uh, about four or five verses in the middle. I'm going to kind of go through them and kind of unpack some of this stuff. And as we read this, I want you to think, if that's what love is, what does that look like in my family? In other words, let me give you an example. Love is patient. So I don't know about you, but there's some days getting out the door, especially when my kids were younger. I say that's not true. It's still true today. In fact, I've got two boys and this story is not in my notes, but it fits this perfectly. And they're not here, so I can say this story. I got two boys. One of them's old enough to drive. And so he drives his brother to school. And every morning, there's this conversation. Cohen! That's my youngest son's name. And about two minutes later, there's this. Eh, 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 from in the driveway. As the older brother has a lack of patience for his younger brother. So that is not what patience look like. But love says love is patient. Can you wait for someone in your family? It goes on, says love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not boastful or proud. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. You see, love is about giving. Lust is about getting. But love is really, what can I give to my family? What can I give to my spouse? What can I give to my kids? Lust says, what can I get? What do I need? But love says, I'm not self-seeking. What can I give? It goes on, says, love is not irritable or easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. We're going to talk about both of those a little more as we look at how to show mercy in our family. It says, love does not delight in evil. It doesn't delight in people's pain. Man, again, this one was written, Paul, I don't know if he had siblings, but this was written to his siblings. Oh, I used to love when my sister got in trouble. Oh, I just loved it. Felt so good because it wasn't me. But love doesn't delight in that. Love doesn't delight in evil or pain happening to others. It says love rejoices with the truth. What does that mean? Well, I think about it like this. I don't know if you've ever done this with your spouse or with a sibling or with your parents. But every once in a while when I'm having one of those discussions, my memory can get a little foggy. And suddenly the details of what really happened, if they don't line up with my side of the argument, suddenly I get a little foggy on that. And I don't know about you, but I say things like, you always do this. Well, is that true? Does my wife always do that thing? No, of course not. And love doesn't, doesn't love when we lie. It doesn't appreciate or work when we lie. It rejoices in the truth. And love is always supportive. Always supportive. Love, is, love always trusts. Love is always hopeful. Love always perseveres. The word persevere, the root word is what? Severe. In other words, love always makes it through tough times. It doesn't go around them. It doesn't avoid them. Love gets through tough times. It says love never gives up. Love never fails. 
When you think about your family, when you think about what you want in your home, in your marriage, in your kids, whatever it might be in the family that you want, love will never fail to get it for you. Unless what you want is to be evil, to be right, to be winning. But if what you want is truly good for your family, then love will never fail to get it and provide it. And love never ends. We never get to get to the point to say, well, God, I loved my kids for 16 years. The next 80 are on you. (laughs) Right? Even our government won't let us say that at 16. But love never ends. There's never a moment where we say, well, I loved you, but I've reached the end of it. Love doesn't end. So we look at all these things, and how do we live these out in our families? How are we patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not irritable or easily angered? How do we keep no record of wrong? How do we do not delight in evil or pain for others, but rejoice in the truth? How are we always supportive, always trusting, always hopeful, always persevering? in our love and our family. Well, we're going to look at that today of four ways to show mercy at home. And if you have your worship guide with you, you can fill along and you've already passed the test, I'm sure. And so we're going to look at four ways. And the first one is this, how to show mercy at home is by overlooking irritation and offenses. Overlooking irritations and offenses. You know, offense is more often taken than it's given. What I mean by that is you more often will hear somebody say, I was offended by that person. You will rarely hear someone say, oh, I offended them. Because rarely do we, especially the people close to us in our homes, rarely are they waking up in the morning going, how can I intentionally offend my children today? And often we take offense rather than give it we and it happens your family members aren't intentionally looking to offend you but first corinthians 13 tells us this about love it is not irritable or easily angered in other words it doesn't get offended it keeps a tough skin but a soft heart and if i can be honest with you as i was preparing this message this was one of the easiest messages to have stories for (laughs) And I wish it wasn't, and I wish I could tell you it was all stories of what my wife and children have done to me. But it wasn't. And this one, equally angered and irritable, this defines me. And I want to tell you it's because I'm half Italian, but it's not. It's because I'm human. And I began to realize a few months ago, this past summer, I was reading a book on parenting, and I I try and read one book on parenting at least every year to kind of remind myself, ah, this is where you're not doing so well. And as I was reading this book, at the same time in our home, something was happening. I was watching my two teenage boys in how they were communicating and responding to their mom and to me and to each other. But as I began to watch it, I began to see something very clearly. Now, I began to see something that my wife has been telling me about for a long time. But I began to actually understand it and see it, is that they were doing what they had seen me do to them. And again, I, my, my initial reaction in a lot of situations is, Ugh! okay, now out here, I will publicly control that. But I was doing the exact thing we're talking about at home. I was just letting my guard down. I was so comfortable and familiar. I was excusing my behavior by saying, well, my boys know I love them. I'm their dad. But I wasn't showing it to them. 
And as I began to see this and see this in them, I realized that for me, what was happening was I would come home tired. I would come home, whatever, whatever excuse I had, it didn't matter. But what was going on was I would become irritable and easily angered because I wanted to just control the situation. I want quiet in the home. I want whatever it might be. Instead of actually caring for my boys and saying, how can I raise them up? What's going on here? How can I love them? What are the things, again, like that verse said, what is it that I want in my family? I'm going to get it, not through being easily irritated or angered, but by loving my kids. And so I actually, I actually grabbed my boys one day and I said, boys, let's talk. And I humbled myself before them and I began to tell them, I said, I see this in you, but here's, and I understand why I see it in me. And I've not been loving to you because I have let myself be easily angered and irritated. And for the past couple months, I'm not perfect yet, but it's been a lot better. And here's what I've noticed is that I, as I have changed who I've been to them, they have changed a little more slowly because they're still teenagers. But they have changed who they are to their mom and to me and to one another. Because love is not easily angered. And now, does that, does that emotion still rise up in me sometimes? Yes. But I also have the self-control to say, no, 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 that's not love. That's not the loving response. And so I have to then grab a hold of it and say, no, no, I'm in control. You see, anger is not a bad emotion. In fact, we are created in the image of God, and so we have the ability to be angry. Because God is angry. God is angry at evil things. God is angry at true injustice. And anger is a correct response to true injustice. It's not a correct response to simply being irritated. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. Anger, if someone is trying to hurt your children, you better get angry. But if the toilet, uh, if the toilet seat is left up and the toothpaste is squeezed in the wrong place, anger is not the right response. That's just irritating. You know what? If the, if the toothpaste, I've never really understood this. Maybe the toothpaste doesn't bother me. By the grace of God, if they squeezed it in the middle and you want to squeeze it in the bottom, just squeeze it in the bottom. Who cares? If the toilet seats up, put it down. Now I understand I'm a man as I say that, okay? So I get it. But those things, anger is not the right response in those situations. In fact, the Bible says this in Proverbs 17, sorry, Proverbs 19, verse 11. It is to your glory to overlook an offense. And I don't know about you, but I want to look glorious to my family. I want my wife to look at me and say, I've got a glorious husband. I want my kids to say, we've got a glorious father. And so if I want to be glory, I have got to learn to overlook some of these offenses. But it's not that easy, especially because uh, in marriage counseling that we do here as a church with a lot of people, you realize that most of us are one of two types of animals. We're either skunks or we're turtles, right? And skunks, when they get angry, they let everybody know about it. They make a stink about it. And turtles, they pull into their shell and they kind of hide from it. And you know what's fascinating is that often skunks marry turtles and turtles marry skunks and then they breed, and so, yes, you might respond different. You might have different ways of doing things than your spouse. But we don't want to respond out of anger to those things that are just irritants and offenses. It is to our glory to overlook them. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, it says this, Be careful that when you get on each other's nerves, you don't snap at each other. Look for the best in each other and always do your best to bring it out. 
If you are irritated by the fact that they squeezed the toothpaste in the wrong place, stop and say, God, I thank you that they've got good breath today. <laughs> Look at the positive. At least they brush their teeth, especially if you've got kids. Don't worry about where they squeezed the toothpaste. Just hope and pray they squeezed it because you want them to have brushed their teeth. So we look for the best. We overlook offense. And we always do what we can to bring it out of each other. The second way of the four ways to show mercy at home is this. Being kind when they don't deserve it, but need it. Being kind when they don't deserve it, but need it. You know, every family has VIPs, right? The very important people. Do you know there's another group of people that you have in your family? And before I describe this person, just know this. If you are sitting next to them, do not indicate that. Okay? So, VDPs. Very draining people. We've all got them in our family, right? Now, hopefully, in-law is part of their title in your family, but they're all there. They're all in our family. These are the people that, they're difficult people. They're irresponsible. They're immature. They're demanding. They're pushy. They're self-centered. They want things their way. They're aggressive. They're rude. They are demanding, destructive, abusive, manipulative, disappointing, promise breakers, and disloyal. Okay, so again, don't name them in your head, but you know who it is in your family. In my family, it was my sister. And I can say that because she's not here. I'm willing to bet she thinks it was me. This is the funny thing about VDPs. We usually don't recognize it if it's us, but we see it so much in other people. But you know what? They probably see it in us as well. But the reality is when my sister went through some of the hardest times in her life, she was draining on my parents. And my dad was a pastor and my dad loved her. But she made some poor choices. And you know, she had reasons for that, but she made those poor choices. And they had to, from time to time, set tough boundaries. But here's the thing I saw, and my parents modeled this, is that whenever she came back with the need, she didn't deserve it. She didn't deserve their help in those seasons. And, and I can say this, because if she sees the live stream somehow, she'll admit and know this. And praise God, she's in a much healthier place now. But there were seasons in her life where she came back and needed help when she didn't deserve it. And my parents extended it. Because they were giving love and action. They were being merciful to my sister. And I remember seeing this time and time again. And of course, I, again, she, I was the VIP, she was the VDP. right? But I remember seeing this, and I remember thinking to myself, I don't know why they're always helping her. Like, do you not realize she's taking advantage of you? And sometimes, you know what? They did. But they said, this is our family. This is our daughter. She needs our help. It's not whether or not she deserves it, but she needs our kindness. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 and 7 says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is always supportive. Not supportive when it's easy, not supportive when someone deserves it, or not supportive because they supported me, but always supportive. And again, simple math. Sometimes the people in our families need our support more than anyone else, so it feels harder to support them if they're in a place of need. But don't look at it and say, do they deserve it? Look at it and say, can I give it? Because that's, that's love in action, as if I will be merciful to them. Proverbs 19.11 says, a man's wisdom gives him patience, 
So we want to have love. We want to have patience. We need wisdom. And I think the greatest wisdom we can have in our family is, in, in order to give mercy is knowing where people are at. And sometimes what we do is we look and we say, man, you got a long way to go. But what we need to do is look and say sometimes, man, you've come this far already. And wisdom says, this is where you're at, and I understand it, and I'm going to ask the questions to understand it. And you know what? Sometimes they're there because of their own choices. Sometimes they're not. But whatever it is, knowing where they are, having the wisdom to know where they are, and going, because of that, I can have patience. I know you're here. And we're going to talk in point four about the point that goes with this, but going, hey, here's where you're at. I can be patient with that because I see how far you've come. And my parents, they were kind with my sister, although they knew the story. They knew the choices she was making, but they still chose to be always supportive, to be kind. It says in uh, Proverbs 3, verse 27, whenever you are able, do good to people who need help. Whenever you are able, do good to people who need help. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, we, we uh, have a verse here that the way it's written, we know he's talking about those that are closest to us. Uh, it says that this, says, don't be hateful to people. Now, sometimes we think, oh, yeah, total strangers, I'm not hateful to them. I didn't, you know, flip that guy off who cut me off in traffic, or I didn't yell at the person who had more than 15 items in the self-checkout line. I'm not hateful, I'm kind. He goes on to say, just because they're hateful to you, rather be good to each other, and everyone else. So he's talking about the everyone else, but he's also talking about the to each other. The people that are closest to you, to your family, don't be hateful, be kind, be supportive. And so even if they don't deserve it, we are kind when they need it. And the third thing in the four, or the third way to show mercy at home is by letting go of past hurts. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, "Love keeps no record of wrongs." No record of wrongs. And I was thinking about this, and I was reminded, or I was thinking of, maybe it's because I was watching some college football yesterday, but you know when you watch ESPN, for those of you that watch sports, they've got that little uh, thing on the bottom of the screen, it's called the ticker, that has a constant update of what's happening in other games. You know, it's probably updates from what happened. You know, CNN has the same thing. If you watch the news on the bottom of it, it's got, it's just, it's this constant stream of information as to what's happening. And I think sometimes I can look at my children and have this constant ticker just going, this morning they didn't do their chores. Yesterday they didn't do what I asked them to do. Last week they didn't put the dishes away the way I wanted it done. Right? And it's, I'm talking to them like, hey, how was school? But on the bottom I just see this constant update. They didn't do this. They didn't do this. Oh, my goodness. Have you checked their grades this week? Oh, my goodness. Why are we paying for education? <laughs> Whatever it is, there's just this constant stream of remembering what they've done and holding on to it. It's like the guy who came to his buddy and said, man, I went home last night and my wife got historical on me. And his buddy replied and said, you mean she got hysterical? He says, no, historical. She started telling me everything I've ever done wrong. Right? How many of you have a spouse that can get historical on you sometimes? Isn't it amazing how good our memory can be about what they've done compared to our memory about what we've done? My wife will tell me, remind me of things. I never did that. And I just have these three little kids. Yeah, you did. Well, I don't remember doing it, so therefore it must not have ever happened. But how do we not keep records of the hurts or records of wrongs that have been done against us? 
1 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says it this way. Love is not rude. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or touchy. It does not hold grudges. In other words, it doesn't hold on to things. Grudges don't work. Grudges don't work. Grudges don't help you win. Grudges just trap you in them. You know, there's a saying out there, you don't nurse it, you don't rehearse it, don't immerse yourself in it, don't curse the other person with it. When we hold on to these grudges, this is what we do. We say don't nurse it because what, what is nursing? It's when you care for someone back to health. So when you're holding on to a grudge and you're nursing it, you're basically saying, I want this to live. I want it to be strong. I want it to be healthy. You want a grudge against your family member to be strong and healthy. And you're wondering, man, I don't understand why our relationship's not getting better. Because you're nursing this grudge. Or we rehearse it. Oh, when they get home, here's how this conversation's going to go. Oh, I'm going to say this, and then they're going to realize how right I am, and then they're going to apologize, and then they don't, and that starts a big argument, a big fight, but you just rehearse it in your mind, but you never actually have the conversation. How good is rehearsal if the, let's say you're at a play, you're in a theater setting and stuff, and you're just rehearsing, 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 and you come up one day to the director, and you say, when's the show? They say, well, we're never doing a show, we're just rehearsing. Well, what's the point? So don't rehearse in your mind what you're going to do. Actually have the conversation. Actually bring it up. Actually talk about it. Because that's part of letting go of those things. Sometimes we need to have those hard conversations. Stop fighting to be right and start doing right. Or let me put it this way. Understand and value being in right relationship is more valuable than just being right. Don't hold on to the grudges. Now, it's not as always as easy as just saying, well, you know what, I don't care. No, maybe it does bother you. But don't hold on to it. Forgive them. Talk about it. Process it with them. Have those healthy discussions. And have those healthy discussions with God as well. God, you see what they did to me. Here's why that hurt. But God, help me forgive them. Because I want to forgive them and I want to let go of it. There's a phrase I want you to write down. And there's not, there's not a specific spot for it on your paper here, but I want you to write it down. It's a little mantra to help you understand how to let go of past hurts. Don't repeat it. Delete it. Don't repeat it. Don't keep saying it in your mind. And here's the thing that's going to be challenging is those, those family members, the ones where you're going, they always do this, they always do this. There's a good likelihood they're going to continue doing that thing. They're 